Welcome to A Walk in My Stilettos, where our goal is to help you walk in your greatness. I'm your host, McKinney Smith. Hey, Faith Walkers. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Walk in My Stilettos podcast, where we have conversations with amazing women that are letting us step into their shoes. I help women to own their stories, conquer their fears so they can reach their goals. And I get inspired when I see another woman succeeding. But what interests me more is her mindset and her backstory on how she got there. So today's guest is about to bless us with her testimony. And since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. We have Komal Minhas. She is a host, an interviewer, an investor. Komal produced the documentary film Dream Girl about female entrepreneurs that landed her on Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100 list. The film was premiered at the Obama's White House. She's a cancer survivor, a chronic illness advocate. She's the host of an amazing podcast of her own called Lessons Learned, as well as the host of Thrive Podcast for Women Entrepreneurs in partnership with Startup Canada, Scotiabank, and the Business Development of Canada. And Como recently interviewed the one and only Michelle Obama on her tour in front of an audience of 8,000. And she's interviewed other influential women like Canada's First Lady Sophie Gregor, Trudeau, Rupi Kaur, and more. And Como's work has been featured on NBC, Forbes, Elle, Create and Cultivate, and much, much more. So please welcome to the show, Como Minhas. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm so pumped to be here. I'm really grateful that you are having me on the show. I appreciate it so much. I'm going to total fangirl right now because <laughs> I, like like I said in the beginning, I listen to your podcast. I'm obsessed. I listen to every single episode. I think I'm just, I just need to finish the most recent episode. And I love your transparency. I love your story. So I just want to thank you again for coming on and agreeing to share that with us. It's a pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. I remember the first moment we met at the Founders Fund last year, mm-hmm. and there was an immediate connection with what you shared about your story with me and your audience knows your story. Mm-hmm. Um, the vulnerability you shared with me, it was instant. So it was a no brainer when you asked me to join and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And that, that was exactly that day when you shared about your health struggles and still being able to push through and everything that you've been through. I love people who are transparent about their story. I love people who have owned what they've been through, but they're using that to push through and inspire other people. And I was like, okay, do I ask? Do I not ask? Do I ask? Do I not ask? And I'm like, just ask. (laughs) You always ask. If I've learned anything in my life, you always ask. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. And I'm going to jump into that in a minute because I listened to your podcast on how you were able to get that interview with Michelle Obama and and your conversations with Oprah. So I'm going to get there. But I'd love to start the show with an icebreaker question because I believe that as women, we have so many different titles that we go by, but I feel like a title that's not given enough significance is our name because our names have meaning. So my first question to you, Como, is do you know what your name means? Yes, my name has a fun story behind it. So my name is Komaljeet Korminhas. Mm-hmm. And about a month before I was born at my mom's, I think it was like one of her last ultrasounds, the doctor had told her that there was a chance that I might be a stillborn. And I don't like, she didn't tell anyone in the family, didn't tell my dad, just kept that to her heart. And when I was delivered, I was delivered via C-section and my mom, like before she like kind of passed out after delivery was like, (laughs) is she breathing? And I was. And so the name my mom gave me, Gomaljeet means gentle victory. 
So mm-hmm. komal means gentle or soft and jeet means victory. And kor, uh, all Sikh women from the Sikh faith have the middle name kor and it means princess or warrior princess. So it's a pretty fun name, gentle victory warrior princess. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh. And w- what I also love about your name, because I mean, you know, every time someone says your name, they're declaring who you are. They're affirming that meaning. And when I listen to your podcast, another reason why I resonate with it is you speak so gentle and tender and (laughs) just the the way that you speak when you're, you know, talking on your podcast, it resonates with me because I've, how do I say this? Even when I'm doing public speaking, I'm known to be very mellow and soft and sometimes I become self-conscious about it, but I was listening to you and I was like, oh, I love this. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Yes. People often tell me, they're like, I play your podcast before bed to help me relax. And they're like, don't worry, it doesn't put me to sleep. And I'm like, I'm okay if it does, because in the kind of world we have today, we need things that can help us like bring our nervous system down and relax and chill and just be. So I'm grateful that my voice has that, that capacity to do that for people and yours as well. Thank you. It's just so calming the way that you speak on your podcast. It's like you pace yourself and Although you're sharing the lessons learned and they're so valuable. So if you're listening, you need to go and subscribe to Lessons Learned Podcast. But it's like in such a calming way. Like I love to listen to your podcast while I'm driving because it keeps Mm. me calm instead of listening to music that has me, you know, worked up. I don't know if it's a mixture of your voice and the tone in which you speak, but it's beautiful. So thank you. Thank you. I genuinely believe our voices, they hold the traumas. They hold our experiences. They are colored with our lived experience throughout our whole life. And there's something so special about voice. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think we have our favorite singers. We have the favorite things we like to listen to. Our mom's voice or our dad's voice, whoever our caretaker was, like it leaves a mark on our souls. Mm, Um, So I think voices are so special. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before I jump into where you are currently, I love to ask, like, what did you want to be when you were a little girl? I wanted to be a lawyer. My mm-hmm. mom always kind of had that in my brain that, you know, the legal profession was like going to be a great place for me to go. I think a lot of young girls too, I don't know about other girls, but marine biology was also something I like thought I would want to do, <laughs> like studying dolphins and the ocean. And meanwhile, I can't swim very well, so I don't know why I was thinking that. <laughs> Um, but law was really kind of the thing that guided me. And it was up until 10th grade when I had come to Ottawa for the first time and saw Carleton University and found out it was one of the best journalism programs in the country that I realized the power storytelling had in my life and how much of a role journalism would end up playing in my story. But initially I thought law. And it's funny because even up to like last Christmas in 2018, my mom was still telling me to go to law school. And I was like, Ma, that ship has sailed. Like, I am not going to law school. I I think I'm good. I got this. (laughs) (laughs) So it's funny that you you say that because there was um, another female that I had on the show, Nadia Theodore. She's the uh, delegate um, from Canada. She takes care of, I'm going to say, like the southern states in the U.S., And we were talking about culturally how our parents 
you know, want us to be certain things or their expectation of us to be certain things. So you wanting to get into law, was that something that was influenced by your parents or something that you genuinely wanted to do? For me, I have always been interested in politics. And that's definitely colored by my family and my upbringing, because we were a very liberal family. I mean, my parents came to Canada because of the Multiculturalism Act, Mm -hmm. which was put in place by Trudeau Sr., And so we'd always have politicians coming and going throughout our house. And when I looked at the path towards politics or running for office in Canada, (laughs) a lot of the prime ministers or MPs or folks that choose that path went to law school. And, but also later I realized there's a handful that were also journalists. So Mm. it was Mm. like, it was what showed to me that, that bigger goal of service to our country, to our nation, like it was the path to getting there. And then Mm -hmm. as I like uncovered it more, I realized, you know, law in and of itself wasn't something that I wanted to do just to them as a means to an end. I knew I wanted to live a full life in between now and if and when I decide to run for politics. But it was for sure colored by my parents because I think our entire being is in essence colored by whatever our parents expose us to. And for me, Mm -hmm. it happened to be news and politics were, were the two biggest things. Two things. I mean, I actually ran for MPP in 2018 in our um, provincial election. No I was one way. of the <laughs> Yeah, I was one of the handpicked candidates. That's so amazing. I was, <laughs> I was the MPP candidate for Oshawa in 2018. And Congratulations. I, that was, thank must you. have been such a ride. Oh my goodness. It oh was probably God. one of the most hands-on, if there's ever an experience where you want to be developed quickly, that would be it. And I had no intention of being in politics. None. Mm -hmm. Zilch. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It was just my passion to serve and to help others. And my name was put forth by someone else. And, you know, the party seeked me out and they were watching me. And when they first approached me, I said, nope, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, but this is what you're passionate about. You're passionate about helping people. We think you'd be the perfect candidate. And obliviously, I said, okay. (laughs) And it was a beautiful ride. Not sure if I'd ever do that again, but yeah. it was a beautiful ride. It was a beautiful ride. It's honestly so. <laughs> it takes such a, like takes so much from you, but you mm-hmm. it's like you're serving that higher purpose and that higher calling and your commitment to impact and supporting the the people in your community. And wow, I can only imagine what campaigning and also just mm-hmm. putting yourself out there in a way where you become conversation for everyone and anyone. Mm. Oh, um, girl, what that must have been like for you. <laughs> I've got stories for days for another time, but it was, here's what I have to say. For any woman of color considering getting into politics, it definitely takes thick skin. And I thought I had thick skin before that opportunity, but it's definitely thickened my skin to understand that it's not about me. When people say things or they do things, definitely more of a reflection of of them. So being a, a woman of color, especially running in a riding that is not necessarily multicultural. So door knocking every day and knocking on thousands of doors during your campaign where I'm going to say Caucasian people will either slam the door in your face or tell you have the audacity to knock on their door, all of those things. But being able to not internalize that and take that personal and just be a stronger person and know that in life, doors may slam in your face, but it's okay. You can keep going. So I learned a lot through that experience, but it's not about me. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I know the, in, the interviewer in me is like, I have questions. <laughs> 
<laughs> we will definitely have a, have a side conversation. But I would love to know, like, what was your intention behind Dream Girl? Because, I mean, sometimes when we start a project or we put a project out there, our original intention behind it may be different than the end result. Absolutely. So when Dream Girl came into my life, so Dream Girl is a documentary film about female entrepreneurs. We share the stories of five female entrepreneurs. Four of the five are women of color, which was something we didn't traditionally see on screen at that time. And even today, you know, that was only 2016, three, four years ago now. Mm-hmm. But the intention behind Dream Girl, it was truly to help people seen, be seen who traditionally are not seen. So our tagline at the time was, we know the names of Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg, but who are the female founders? What do their lives look like? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't the founder of Dream Girl. I came on board after I initially saw the Kickstarter campaign for it. And then I came on as producer and co-founder. Okay. But Erin, my, uh, my co-founder, it was her brainchild. It was her passion point. It was a story that was within her to be told. And it was one that when I saw it, her call to action with the Kickstarter campaign that she raised over $100,000 doing. When I saw that happen, I knew I had to get involved. I had to invest and I had to help bring that film and that movement to life, which we did from 2014 to 2016. Wow. So then how did you... And I'm going to say, I'm sure that it had to do with all of the different steps that you've taken and all of the big asks that you've, I'm going to say, had the courage to ask along the way. But if you could sum up how you became this global powerhouse. (laughs) uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I appreciate that. But it's one of those things where when I hear that, I'm like, I am, I am, thank you. I I'm humbled by that. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So listening to your podcast, I've learned how hard the journey was for you to getting to be able to interview Michelle Obama and what goes on behind the scenes and the many emails that you had to put out and the amount of disappointments after so many big asks. How did you deal with the emotional disappointments and to keep pushing until it happens? I would say when it comes to us choosing, uh, because it's an active choice what our next goal or our next dream is, we have to go into it knowing that we chose this audacious goal because it was going to help us turn into an even better version of ourselves and into a version of ourselves that could achieve whatever goal we've set out to achieve. So we're ultimately in a process of becoming, which is really funny because that's the name of Michelle Obama's book. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. the day we're recording this is actually Michelle Obama's birthday. So it's a beautiful day for us (laughs) to be doing this. But when I set out with that goal in mind, I had just come out of my last surgery in November 2018 for endometriosis. I had a cyst that had continued to grow that needed to be removed and significant scar tissue in my uterus that needed to be cleaned out. And this was my third surgery in the span of two years, two prior being from a cancer diagnosis, uh, skin cancer diagnosis. And when I was coming out of that recovery, what was supposed to be a six-week recovery turned into a 12-week recovery because of complications post-op. So when I booked the trip, 
to see Michelle Obama speak. I booked booked it to go to Denver, Colorado with a friend of mine. She had reached out to me and asked if I was interested. And I said, hells yes, <laughs> because I had just come through one of the hardest recoveries of my experience of recovering, which was three years of my life on and off with illnesses. Mm-hmm. And so saying it was difficult, it was really tough on me. And I knew that I had to do something special for myself. So when I booked that trip to Colorado, I did it with the intention of just attending that event to see Michelle Obama in her fullness and let that inspire me for whatever was meant to be next. But what happened was when I landed in Colorado, they announced that Michelle Obama was expanding her book tour to Canada. And they were going to be going to various Canadian cities. And one of them was Edmonton. And I'm an Alberta girl. I'm from Grand Prairie, Alberta. And I thought, who the hell is going to interview Michelle Obama <laughs> in Edmonton. It's got to be me. Right. And we had purchased meet and greet tickets. And so I decided I was going to use my time in the meet and greet to pitch Michelle Obama to let me interview her on stage in Edmonton. And so what got me through that moment, so I did, I pitched her and I am the queen of 45 second pitches of getting a lot of information, compelling a person to listen, to give you their heart, give you their attention, and then to get the response that I so deeply and powerfully am seeking. She mm-hmm. said to me, this is destiny. We're going to make this happen. And then introduced me to her chief of staff. And that outcome made me know just her response. Because if I think of it from a spiritual perspective, it's like that I was so in my flow and my power and in clarity of that ask that Mm -hmm. she received it so fully and was able to be present with me so fully. And so that moment, that yes, that this is destiny got me through the following 10 months of hardship because I was so rooted in knowing this was supposed to happen. And a a week before they officially asked me, I had been told no, like for Ottawa, that this isn't going to happen. And I recorded on my Instagram stories, me saying I wasn't selected for Michelle Obama. And I shared with my audience, I said, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If this takes me a couple of years, this takes a couple more months, whatever it looks like, like this is going to happen. It's just a matter of when. And the difference between, and I'll come back to finishing that part of the story, but I want to rewind a bit of when they told me no for Edmonton, because they had me book it into my calendar, her chief of staff was very responsive with me up until two weeks before the event when Robin Roberts became available, who's one of Michelle Obama's friends, hosts of Good Morning America. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, okay, if I got that, didn't get this because Robin Roberts is available, like that's okay. <laughs> I am okay right. with that. But I was devastated. I remember opening that email. I had just finished a workout and it took so much from me. And I realized how anxious I had been for the three months Mm. prior when I was waiting. So the difference between getting no that time to getting no that week before they actually said yes, was I wasn't letting that no take my joy and my power away. That Mm. night in October when or in September when they told me no compared to the night in March, I chose to behave differently. I chose to respond differently. I planned to cook a big Indian feast for my father-in-law and Mitch. And so I continued to do that. Yes, there were tears. Were they from the onion or from getting told no? It's hard to say. (laughs) (laughs) But I controlled my reaction because that's the thing of disappointment when you're going through and towards your biggest dreams and goals. You have to love the shit out of the journey because yes, being on stage was phenomenal and one of the highlights of my life. 
But I will never forget the 10 months it took me to get there. And I loved every moment of it, high or low. And so I had to choose differently that night because I wasn't going to let it destroy me because I knew there was more work to be done. And Mm -hmm. I knew that it wasn't going to take that much of my joy. And then lo and behold, a week later, when I got the call and they actually asked me to do it, I was like, shit, it's not going (laughs) to take a few years. It's not going to take a couple months. It actually was a couple days. Uh, And you just have no idea. You have no idea what is conspiring in your favor and what you're meant to learn from the journey. But it was that first initial gut instinct that got me through that whole 10 months. Wow. And just that last part that you said where, you know, you realize it wasn't going to take, you know, a long period of time. It it took a couple of days. I also find when you're expecting something big or when you're trying to manifest something, if we're not in that right vibration, if we're not in that happy space, like if there's any form of anxiety or anything like that, it slows down that process. But I wanted to actually go back to what you said about your recovery, because similar to you, I had surgery and it was supposed to be a six week recovery. (laughs) And (laughs) you talked about your six week recovery ended up being 12 weeks. My six week recovery almost ended up being 12 months. Wow. So the first six months was a nightmare. It was like infection after infection and different things happening and them thinking that it went from the abnormal cells, possible cervical uh, cervical cancer to the cyst in my uterus that was abnormal that instead of trying to remove because they thought it may be cancerous to removing my entire uterus. And then after that, there was complications where they thought I may have colon cancer and finding out that it was like C. deaf. It was a nightmare. But Mm, I'm so sorry that that happened. And I'm sorry that that happened to you as well. And I, I wanted to touch on that because I do know that there are so many women, especially women of color, that are suffering in silence with fibroids and endometriosis and all of these things. And they're afraid to do the surgeries. And I know that our circumstances may not be normal, but how was getting through that for you? What, yeah. what kept you going? How did, how did you get through that? It's funny because it's not funny, but I think it's funny because once you go through the hard thing, you can laugh about laugh the hard about thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like all my friends after they're like, you should play the cancer card. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, it's not too morbid anymore. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's having gone through those three surgeries in two years. Cause my first surgery as well, the recovery was a lot tougher than I thought it was going to be. The second surgery, the recovery was a lot tougher than I thought it was going to be because I had a tough time with the surgery itself. They didn't end up sedating me. I ended up having PTSD from it. It was just a whole lot. And I know I can talk with you about this and the level of empathy you have for it is huge because of your experience with Mm -hmm. how that domino effect happened with your health. The way that I got through the third recovery was taking the lessons and learnings from the first two and applying them. Mm -hmm. And what that looked like for me was going into that surgery It was around Halloween. It was before Halloween. And I love a good horror movie. I love decorating. And I love being like surrounded by, you know, fun, cute things. So I made, just like I would with work and with year planning or whatever, I literally made a plan of attack for recovery. And I scheduled self-care things the week before the surgery so that I could feel really good going into it. Like nutritionally, I plan to eat a certain way before surgery so that my body could recover faster after if I, if that's even within our control. And then I, you know, decorated my house for Halloween and I made a list of all the horror movies I wanted to watch. 
and I brought my coloring books to this, my living room where I knew I was going to be re- hanging out most of the time. Mm-hmm. I downloaded the ebooks I thought I would want to read because recovery, I didn't get to do all of that, but it gave me something to spend my time thinking about because I actually just was in too much pain to do anything for most of my recovery. Mm-hmm. But just having those things around me gave me a level of comfort that was really needed in to face the challenges that were in front of me. So comfort is a huge part of the recovery process for me, whether that's comfort with the people I'm around, but more specifically with the physical space that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I did was I scheduled workouts like I would have if I was well, but just for stretch sessions or mindfulness or meditation moments so that I could still care for myself or feel like I was still in a routine. Because Mm -hmm. that's one thing about recovery and about being an illness is it takes over your life. And so what I've learned about resilience and what I've learned about being well is routine and ritual and schedule is so important, regardless of what season of your life you're in. Mm -hmm. So if you're sick and in recovery, just spending your time organizing your doctor's appointments, your uh, supportive health appointments like that you're doing as a ter- at a tertiary level or like organizing your vitamins into ways that are going to be helpful for you. Like there's always a way to optimize mm-hmm. and that gave your brain something to be active and thoughtful about. But at an emotional level, it was journaling. It was continuing my sessions with my coach slash therapist. And it was just knowing that it was going to be fucking hard. And I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I don't know on this podcast. Be you, girl, be you. That's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Own your truth. (laughs) So yeah, like that's honestly how I got through it. And it sucked. Like I couldn't even ride in a car because post-op I had uh, anything that happens to happen to me during that period was like a one in a million health thing. It was like oh, you had this surgery? Well, here's this one in a million type of cyst that comes back and is actually like, you know, 13 centimeters big. So you can't even mm. ride a car because when you, when it, when it moves, you, it's like pulling your ovary around. Right. And I'm like, great, cool. Of course. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's also like a sense of detachment from what you're what, like, there's a bit of dissociation that has to happen to survive those sorts of periods of time. Yes, And so those are all the thoughts in my brain. It was relatively cohesive, I think. <laughs> oh, definitely. And and now I'm going to like jumble it all up because everything that you said triggered another question. And I'm like, well, is that a random question to ask next? But it, it connects to everything that you just said, because you talked about comfort being very important. And then I wanted to mix in your podcast that I'm currently listening to now that I'm not all the way finished. You're talking about you attending Rachel Hall's event. And yeah. But side note to that, I love her as well. Yeah. <laughs> I subscribe to her newsletter. I follow her on Instagram. I have her podcast, her and her husband's podcast, both of them. So yes, I'm a Rachel Hollis fan as well. But you <laughs> talked about going to her event. And I believe the title of the podcast is lifting each other up when you feel like you're the only one. Yeah. Um, and the reason where uh, or I'm going to try and tie this all in so it makes sense as it's in my head. There are many times especially because I'm in personal development and my main mentor is a 90 year old white man, Bob Proctor. So Mm -hmm. it's like, I find myself the only person of color or the only woman of color in a room often. Mm -hmm. And so I I know that you're also doing Julie Black's um, 100 day challenge. And there was an event that I was at 
Wajuli Black was speaking, and she said that your disadvantage is your advantage, mm. and to take that and make the most out of it. So I've found a way to flip when I'm the only woman of color, the only person of color in a room, how to use that to my advantage, because they always want to know, well, why are you so special? How did you get in here? Who are you? You must mm. be important. <laughs> um, so selfishly, because I didn't get to finish listening to that episode yet, which I plan on doing later today, like <laughs> how, how do you deal with being the only one in the room? Mm. It's really interesting because that conversation and, and that experience last week and into this week has opened up a Pandora's box of more questions. So for your listeners, what ended up happening was I went to Rachel Hollis's RISE conference in Florida, Fort Myers, Florida. And the way that the Hollis company and that Rachel and her husband um, hold themselves is in an inclusive way. Like they are thoughtful about intersectionality. They are thoughtful about inclusion. Their daughter is that they adopted is biracial. Uh, their programming on stage, it was almost 50-50 in terms of representation when it comes to people of color versus, um, you know, the white speakers. Mm-hmm. And it was, there's a lot, the ticket prices are as inclusive as they can be. A three-day conference was $380. There was a okay. price point for that. And they give out numerous scholarships. So I'm going into this event being like, I'm about to meet my people. Like mm-hmm. these are people who are thoughtful like me. And just for your listeners as well, I'm in a mixed relationship. My husband is white. I live with my white father-in-law. We live in the middle of the country. Like I'm calling into this podcast from the village of Carp, which is like <laughs> a tiny, tiny place outside of Ottawa. And it's a predominantly white community. And I grew up in Grand Prairie, Alberta, surrounded like being very much one of the only ones. So going into this 4,000 person conference and going into registration and seeing a thousand white women around me. And I counted 14 women of color, many of whom are actually event staff, like checking Mm -hmm. us in and registering us. The juxtaposition of like in my brain of like, why does this feel so isolating when my everyday life in so many ways, I am also the only Mm -hmm. in my own house. But it's because there's a level of trust, love and respect with the people whom I operate with on a daily. I think there's also in the spaces I do exist in within Canada, within Ottawa or wherever I go, there's a level of trust and respect. But I was in a part of the US, that county, Lee County that I was in did vote 68% for Trump. The plane takedown in Iran had just happened. There's Mm. racial flare ups happening. And I'm surrounded by 4,000 white women. And Mm. 53% of white women in the US voted for Donald Trump. And so I had to rationalize so much of that experience because it makes you feel crazy. Mm -hmm. Like you're just like, what's wrong with me? Why am I seeing this? Why am I noticing this? How can I move through this? And I chose to do it with my audience. So I shared candidly in real time on Instagram, on my stories, all three days of the Rise event and conference. And what helped me in being the only in that situation was opening it up to other people like me online mm-hmm. so that I was no longer the only. Right. Because through sharing that story, I got hundreds of DMs about other women of color's experiences or other people with marginalized identities experiences about being the only in certain rooms and how they were too scared to speak up for being made into a trope, stereotype, or whatever it might have been Mm -hmm. for them naming the thing. And so that gave me the courage to further, to share my story with the CEO of the company, Dave Hollis, with a written note when he was doing a meet and greet, I I handed it to him and he read it later. 
he followed me on Instagram and then he DM'd me later to say how grateful he was that I was able to share my story and give those insights and that it's something that they would definitely be considering um, moving forward because they don't have full control over their audience. It's not like they're making people check boxes as they're signing up for this conference to be like, what race are you? In fact, that's illegal. So it's like, (laughs) I know that, and the event staff told me that they were surprised by the racial makeup of the event. Like it, it was the most skewed in one way that they'd ever had. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, I see them with the Instagram stories from the event, predominant, like 50, 50 showing white women and women of color. And I'm like, but that skews how people are seeing this externally. Like that wasn't the makeup of the event. So all of these things I was able to articulate and share with Dave and with my audience. And so when I'm the only, I now take it beyond just saying, oh, it's like, and not even to minimize this, to be grateful to be in the room, but now to understand that rooms should not look like that in the spaces that I choose to occupy and in the industries and with the experts and people that I choose to engage with. Like we are better than this. So for me, it's experiencing it, being there, but not letting it again, take me over and make me doubt myself and make me question my worthiness. Instead, I externalize that into action. Mm -hmm. How can I improve the situation? How can I escalate the experience? How can we educate and make this better? Because I genuinely believe people strive for excellence and they want to be better. And where we get caught up is in attacking one another instead of finding ways to inform Mm -hmm. and then share that I have a higher expectation of this and I know you can do better. And that is what gets me through it is like just knowing that I'm not here to self-sacrifice anymore. I'm not here to take on the burden of your indiscretion, of your Mm -hmm. like shitty planning of your whatever it happens to be. That's not my burden to bear. Mm -hmm. What I I am here to do is to educate you in the ways that I can because I do bring a diverse perspective and you do value it because we know that inclusion is mandated in the future and you Mm want to be better. So that's what that experience showed me about what I do when I am the only in a room. I love how you can take a situation where someone else who may have been in your shoes would have looked at that and just complained and made it a bigger issue. But your key point of taking action and the way that you're able to hold space and say, okay, what are we going to do with this? Or how can we improve this? And informing the people who are in the position to make those changes There was an episode that I did with Emily Mills. I'm not sure if you're familiar with who she is. I think she was episode 60. Yes. Yes. I love Emily. How she hustles, Um, right? Yes, exactly. So Emily, she was a journalist for CBC and she built her own, I'm going to say, movement uh, of women called How She Hustles. And when she was on, she shared a story about being in or attending a big conference or event and how she was the only Black woman in the room. The only other people of color in that room were the serving staff Mm. and how much that hurt her and how that impacted her and her drive to take that and flip that into action and to do more in that space and to hold space uh, for people of color. And it gave her more of the initiative to push her new initiative, which is Startup and Slay for women of color entrepreneurs. So I love that you've taken action and not just, you know, made a complaint about it and left it there. Mm -hmm. So I also think that it's important for us to know that it's not our work to do for other Mm -hmm. people. 
Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I escalated and yes, I sent it to Dave and all this stuff. Am I going to follow up to see if they change it? It's not my company and that's right. not my job. Right. There are people who have reached out to me who are executives at various organizations and are the only women of color or people of color in the executive. And when they bring up issues of inclusion and intersectionality and diversity and belonging, it then becomes put on them to fix the problem. To fix it, right. And I think we need to remind ourselves in those situations that you are there for a specific job. My job there was to be a participant who loved the shit out of the event. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really shitty. And Mm -hmm. what I wish would have happened was to get an apology from the Hollis Co. And to say, we will do better next time. There was no apology in Dave's message. Like that didn't happen because it's hard for people to own their shit in that way. And I know that and I'm okay with that, but it wasn't my job to do any more than I did. And in fact, it's okay for people to not want to do that emotional labor for others. But Mm -hmm. if you have the capacity, it can be, it can change a lot if you're willing and able and have the capacity to offer that, but it's not your emotional labor. I think it's good that you pointed out that if you have the capacity, because not everyone has the capacity to be an advocate. I know speaking from experience when social media was in uproar over the Black Lives Matter, because I wasn't using my platform to push that, I got a lot of flack for that. I am an advocate for positivity. I'm an advocate for helping people tap into their potential. I'm an advocate for love. Those are the things that I have the capacity to take on and hold space for. I don't have capacity to, to hold for a lot of the, the negativity. And I don't believe that is my job. I'd love to ask you, like, how have you leveraged your story to inspire others? I think that I've made it my job. (laughs) 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 You know, I think that I've been doing a lot of research lately on the Oprah effect and the impact of the Oprah Winfrey show and us as a society going from or beginning to start to be able to tell our stories and personal essays and memoirs and you know, all of this and how it really, she was a massive catalyst for society to be able to do that and to be Mm -hmm. able to get into very difficult and hard conversations with one another. And that paved the way and enabled me as a first gen Canadian South Asian woman in a culture that is very patriarchal and that, you know, can be very oppressive Mm -hmm. to speak my truth and speak it loudly and to be able to share my story. And I'm blessed with the parents that I do have who don't hold me back from doing that and who embrace it and support me the best they can as I do that. And so sharing my story has become second nature to me and is is part of my business, my life and how I operate. And it's also part of my healing because if you keep that shit inside, it haunts you. Mm-hmm. And so it's become part of my mastery to be able to share, share when I'm ready to share something. I've also had massive vulnerability hangovers when I share things that aren't <laughs> ready to be shared. Yeah, I think yeah. it's really important for us to like be honest with ourselves about, am I sharing this thing for attention right now? Or is this something that I would share whether or not anyone else would see it? Or would I have written this? Or like, you know, we really have to ask ourselves hard questions about our intention behind when we share vulnerable things and with whom we're sharing it. But if you're ready and if you've done the work to be able to do it, that's something that I spend every day of my life becoming a master of and doing the inner work to be able to know that the stories I'm sharing can help others because I've done the work to be able to package them and create them in a way that can leave that impact. But also for me to know that through sharing it, 
I'm allowing myself to release so much and to Mm -hmm. heal so much and to elevate through that storytelling. I could totally relate to everything that you've just said, because I feel like your answers were what I would have said. Mm. Um, (laughs) Studying vulnerability through Dr. Brene Brown and understanding mindset stuff, thanks to Bob Proctor, about when we suppress our emotions and how we become depressed when we hold it in. You know, we need to express it and let that, that energy out. And then you spoke to sharing things when you're ready and the whole oversharing, because there are people that can share and it actually has a negative effect and maybe they're doing it for attention, but what is the reasoning behind it? I find a big thing for me because I'm known for my transparency and vulnerability. And sometimes I call that it's a blessing and a curse at the same time is learning to share my scars and not my scabs. So Mm. if something is, I'm still healing from it in a sense where something someone says online could trigger me from it, I don't share. And for example, I was in a relationship with someone that I thought I would be with for the rest of my life. And it ended unexpectedly. And I sat with that for months, not wanting to share. And social media, my DMs were filled with women saying, hey, we haven't seen you post any couple pictures lately. Hey, what happened to him? Hey, are you guys okay? And I couldn't respond because I wasn't ready to share that. And recently I opened up and just let people know that that relationship ended and I'm healing. But the whole part about sharing and understanding why we're sharing things I think is super huge. And I love that you spoke to the importance of our stories. Yeah, because sometimes I feel like we use sharing as a surrogate for love. Mm -hmm. Like we're not finding it somewhere, the love, attention, affection that we really need at a soul level to get to that comfort and contentment and that wholeness that we're seeking. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to find wholeness in people's comments on Instagram. No, absolutely and not. So <laughs> the stories that we share are sacred. And so we can't give other people the power to dictate how we're supposed to feel about our lives. Right. But it takes a lot of work to get there. It took me a lot of years of sharing to seek wholeness, to get to a place where I am whole and sharing. Yes. I love that. So what inspires you most about what you do? I feel like when I finished up with Dream Girl back in 2016, it was after my cancer diagnosis and recovery and I was cancer free. And then I got hit with a neurological illness and it took me out for many months and it Mm -hmm. took me the last many years to feel like myself again. And what happens when we're sick and when we're ill or when grief hits or when any major trauma happens in our lives is we lose our confidence. Yes. So if you notice with colleagues who experience a massive loss in their life, when they come back to work, they might question the quality of their work. They might question the quality, like, why am I here? I'm not worthy of being here. I'm not good at my job anymore. Like, It's because we burn to the ground one version of our identity and we're rebuilding another version of our identity, carrying the weight of whatever trauma we've experienced. Mm-hmm. So when I think of me coming back to my confidence and me coming back to feeling competent in my life because competence builds confidence. Mm -hmm. What inspires me about what I do now is I have reconciled so much trauma along the way to get to where I am now that I feel immovable. I -hmm. feel like there are going to be ups and downs in life. There's going to be still so much grief for me because I love so many people There's going to be a lot of hard shit that life throws my way. But what makes me most proud of the work that I do is I have built the resilience in me that I can now teach to the world. Mm 
right. and help each of us become more resilient so that when we do look to come back from life's greatest traumas, we can do it together through shared storytelling and sh- through shared experiences and through our lessons learned. And that I get to do that every single day is what I find most inspiring about my work and my life. Wow. That just gave me goosebumps because as you're talking, whew, okay. So I'm like trying not to get emotional. <laughs> oh, you know, you right? So You've hard. been through so much. Like when you're sick, when you think you're going to die, the mm-hmm. privilege of not dying yep. is literally yep. the most inspiring part of your life. And it takes a while. I was really angry and upset and not motivated and apathetic and wanted nothing to do with the world or work or life. Because when you face death, it takes everything from you. Yeah. So to be on the other side of it where I can create from a whole space and find joy again. Yeah. I am inspired by that, that simple fact that I can still be here and do this work. So you know that because you faced it. I'm holding back tears. I'm totally holding back tears right now because, so my sister passed away in 2012 and Mm -hmm. she was 39 and it started with the issues with fibroids and bleeding and all of that stuff. And me going into 39, having the same issues with fibroids and bleeding and all of that stuff and living every day saying, my sister died at 39. Am I going to diet 39 Mm. and with the health issues that happen every day and being in the hospital and specialists and all these things happening over and over again on a weekly basis, waking up thinking, okay, am I going to live through today? And it wasn't until recently that I've been able to come out of that mindset. But it, what kept me going was doing these podcasts, having Mm. conversations with women like yourself that inspire me to keep going that the feedback from people who listen to the show and their messages about how it's helping them, those are the things that kept me going during my healing process. I have a girlfriend who's currently in hospital right now, and she's been in the hospital for about a month now. She has sickle cell. And mm-hmm. I encouraged her to sign up for the Founders Fund because I'm a part of it this year. And I know you're Woo! a mentor for the Founders Fund. Yes. And <laughs> we were excited to rebuild our business this year and you know she's had to unexpectedly be in the hospital she had a a flare-up with the sickle cell and she was thinking it's so hard being someone with chronic illness and chronic pain and trying to build this entrepreneur business I'm ready to give up and one of the people she spoke with from Founders Fund suggested that she follow you on Instagram because Mm. how you've been able to push through And I went to see her in the hospital this week and was totally suggesting to her because she's a huge fan of my podcast and she listens to every episode because she's, you know, in the hospital, she has the time, but I totally recommended to her listening to your podcast and letting her know how much of a warrior I think you are and you just being a champion for your resilience and your transparency and your ability to still push through and inspire people despite everything that you've been through. So although I don't know you closely, I feel you and I'm like fighting tears right now. <laughs> You're making me cry. <laughs> That's such a beautiful I story just, and I'm sending her so much uh, love. If she's, if you are listening, we are sending you all of our love. <laughs> oh, just thank you for being who you are. Like, honestly, 
our stories are so powerful and I love you for being open and transparent about your story. Whew, okay. <laughs> oh, thank um, you. Because <laughs> that resonance is there because you've lived it. Yeah. And it's that depth of empathy that is what makes your show, your life, what, your purpose, what you're here to do so powerful because people need to know that they can make it through whatever life may give them. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. you are a walking, living example of that truth. And I am grateful to say too the same of myself. So that's why we feel this. Yes. Holy. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay. So casual uh. conversation. <laughs> Perfect. That's why I love this show because you never know where it's going to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess. What advice would you give a woman about going after her deepest desires? Ask yourself what you need in place to feel safe to go after those desires. Mm. Because building towards our desires is a very vulnerable process. And if too many parts of your life are vulnerable, it can take you down. Mm -hmm. And so know that the journey of walking towards and building towards your deepest desires is why we are here in this life. It is why we are called to this life. But it's our responsibility to build around us the supports, the love, the care, the tenderness, the self-love that we require in order to serve that larger mission. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about chasing the dream. It's what have you built around you to help you get to that dream and being very diligent and careful with who you let in what energy is around you, how you talk to yourself, how you care for yourself, the habits you have, the rituals you have. It's the whole package, that whole process that actually allows us to reach mastery and reach those dreams. Wow. I love that. Have you had any like coaches or mentors that have helped you along the way? Yes, I've had many. I am a sucker for teachers. And mm-hmm. I always question my capacity to teach. <laughs> I'm always, I'm the forever student and always too, too humble or whatever it might be too much diminishing myself to be a teacher myself. But in that sense, there's so many people who have helped me out. A dear friend of mine, Stephanie Karlovitz coached me physically and emotionally through the beginning of my recovery from 2017 to the end of 2019. I've worked recently with coach Leah Bratwaite, who is amazing and worked with me through her live free lifestyle in the last quarter of 2019, which really helped me unlock and unleash into the life I'm living now. And therapists as well. You know, I go through seasons with, am I seeking traditional therapy right now? Or am I looking for executive style coaching? Or am I looking for spiritual and life coaching? And I think that's what we get to play with Mm -hmm. and ask ourselves, like, what do I need in this season? And be okay with whatever it is you're called to, but always doing the work of releasing, healing, and like moving through whatever it is we're experiencing. I love that. And to your initial point, when you started answering, you talked about being a great student. In order to be a great leader, you need to be a great student. But I'd love to know what your self-care routine looks like. Yeah. So right now I'm in a season of really trying to master my rituals. And so my self-care routine on an optimal day is waking up. I am usually a night owl and not an early riser. So I'm working Mm -hmm. on building my my morning habits because I do want to rise earlier and earlier. And so I, I wake up 
as early as I can that day. Uh, And then I meditate. I do breath work. I meditate and I journal. And then I try and get my 30 minutes of movement in, get ready. And that's my morning ritual. So that is self-love for me encapsulated in that, in that routine. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the day now, I am intermittent fasting because I eat from 10 a.m. to about 8 p.m. I do a 10, 10 hour uh, feed period, as they call it, and then 14 mm-hmm. hour fasting um, just to give my stomach time to heal and you know, I'm very careful. I'm becoming more and more careful with my nutrition, with eliminating gluten. It's inflammatory. And with my thyroid issues, it's not great for me to be eating gluten. Right. And then dairy is inflammatory for me too. So I've, I've removed that. So when I'm talking about self-care and self-love, it's not just going to the spa and all these things. It's actually, what am I doing every day mm-hmm. to give my body the best chance to be its best? Yeah. And so for me, what that's an optimal day. <laughs> what actually <laughs> happens is like for example, today was a good one. You know, I was able to meditate journal. I didn't get, I got my breath work in, but not as long of a meditation as I wanted to. I got my movement in and then I didn't actually get to shower right away. I had all my meetings happen all back to back because my schedule got delayed a bit, got a quick shower, had another meeting. And now here I'm at this podcast. So it's also (laughs) giving myself grace to be like, it's a Friday and I stacked it like a wild woman. (laughs) And, you know, before bed, we plug our phones in in a different room, but what that's turned into is us just staying up later so we can keep scrolling and then plugging it in and heading mm-hmm. to bed. So my goal would be to be off screens a little bit earlier in the day, but hopefully hopefully I'll get there. But it's it's all this process. But what I learned from my friend Karina LeBlanc, who is a was the goaltender for the Canadian women's Olympic team that won bronze for soccer back in 2012. It's just about like treating yourself like that elite athlete because right now I'm building the podcast tour for lessons learned. We're building lessons learned into its own company where we teach people through storytelling, how they can rise in their capacity for resilience Amazing. Um, through the podcast, through the show, through eventually merchandise and a course on year planning that I'm working on. And so doing all of this requires a lot for me. And I just mm-hmm. came out of a season, like I would say 2016 to 2019, early 2019 was a season of me having to heal and recover and be well. So I mass I was very good at knowing how to do all those things, but to pick back up and get into high performance mode again without burning out and without getting sick again requires me to love the shit out of myself every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what Karina showed me is like I have to treat myself like an elite athlete. And elite athletes don't question their routines and the things that their bodies need. Right. So that's what I'm trying to train myself in when it comes to my self-love and self-care right now is these habits are non-negotiable because they are going to make you feel amazing. So that's what that looks like for me right now. I loved how you spoke to self-care, not just being about the spa visits and all of those things. Recently, I did a couple sessions with an emotional healer so I can get through my own emotional healing. And she pointed out to me that because I'm an empath and because I'm a highly sensitive person, something as simple as not getting enough sleep or booking my clients back to back all day is self-harm and knowing my own capacity. So like you were talking about today being a jam-packed day for you or, or stuff like that, just understanding the things that we are doing that we know is not good for us emotionally, mentally, spiritually, energy-wise, all of those things and putting things in place so that we don't do those things. Like the simplest thing for me for self-care is getting minimum six hours sleep 
and I, I can't function on five or less. So I, I love how you pointed out just the simple things. So totally sidetracked, but there's this article that I came across and I love to ask all the guests that come on the show. And it's a Reader's Digest article that says that your favorite type of shoe says a lot about your personality. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that could be a high heel boot, a running shoe, a flip flop, a stiletto, a pump, a mule. So, Como, what is your favorite type of shoe? It's a sneaker. I love a sneaker because I don't have to fake that a heel is comfortable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I can look fashion and feel great and just comfortable and be myself. And so I feel like sneakers let me be myself. So running shoe fans are goal oriented. (laughs) 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 So if you're someone who enjoys fitness challenges, it takes your new year's resolutions to heart and has been known to go the extra mile with the label maker, you bet you prefer (laughs) running shoes. This is someone who's very confident, very goal oriented and very organized. They really illustrate the idea of multitasking, taking care of everything and being everywhere. Oh my God. <laughs> That's me. That me. <laughs> so That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> I love it. So, <laughs> what's your shoe? Oh man, I'm I'm a stiletto girl. Um yes. hence the name of the brand. Yes, I don't yes. wear them as often as I used to. Now that I've gone into that comfort zone from healing, I only put on a stiletto if I have to attend an event how do I say this? My obsession with stilettos is, I'm going to say, has nothing to do with the comfort of them because they're, like I said, they're no longer comfortable to me. But when I think about how I have to walk when I have on a stiletto and how I have to walk with purpose and how it elevates me and all of those things, it kind of subconsciously puts me in a happier mood. I love it. So before we go to the final segment, I want you to tell people where they can stay connected with you online. Yes, you can find me at Komal Minhas, K-O-M-A-L-M-I-N-H-A-S on Instagram or at lessonslearned.co. And if you find me on Instagram, you'll find me everywhere else. And check out my podcast, Lessons Learned with Komal on everywhere you consume podcasts. It's my life's purpose to share this show with the world. So I'm happy that I'm finally doing it. I love it. I love it. And it's an amazing show. And I will have all of your contact info in the detail section so people can just click and connect with you directly. They won't have to search far. Amazing. So the final segment, I call it a walk in her wisdom where it's just a couple reflection questions and you share the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. What do you wish people were more aware of? their own capacity and their own potential and their own resilience. Awesome. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? It would say, you are everything you've ever wanted. (laughs) (laughs) And it would be in Times Square in New York City and just be like, you don't need any of this. You are everything you've ever wanted. I love it. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and funny you say that actually I'm going to send it to you hopefully it's still available so I have a girlfriend in New York who's in media thanks to her I actually had a billboard in Times Square awesome thank you so much Como, for taking the time to join us you have no idea how much I appreciate you thank you so much for having me it's been such a pleasure thank you thank you and to all of you faith walkers out there until next time subscribe on all platforms rate the show and leave a review on Apple Podcast join the community of faith walkers and sign up for our weekly newsletter at awalkinmystilettos.com. And be sure to grab one of my personal development books available online everywhere. And if you've received value from today's show, if you can think of one person that would receive value from Como's story, 
Share it with that friend that needs to hear her testimony and screenshot this week's episode and tag us on Instagram. Comal's is at Comal Minhas. And do you have one for your podcast as well? Yeah, it's the lessonslearned.co. Awesome. And you can tag myself at the real McKinney Smith and continue to walk in greatness in your stilettos in a manner worthy of your calling. <laughs>